Hi, you're listening to Stefan Levera Podcast. Today for episode 223, Preston Pish rejoins me on the show and we're chatting about this idea of Bitcoin's final cycle. What would it look like? How would we know? How likely is it? And will corporates be buying Bitcoin and be weak hands or strong hands? And what about governments trying to shut down Bitcoin? This show brought to you by Swan. In their effort to spread Bitcoin knowledge and awareness, Swan is giving away a free book, Inventing Bitcoin by Swan co-founder Jan Pritzker. It's the best introduction to the Bitcoin system, rated 4.9 stars on Amazon and highly recommended by Bitcoiners. To get your free ebook or audiobook version of Inventing Bitcoin, go to swanbitcoin.com slash freebook. All Swan asks is that you pay it forward. Share the book with at least three family and friends. And if you join the Swan Force at swanbitcoin.com slash enlist, you'll get a special link to the free copy of Inventing Bitcoin that will help you recruit new Bitcoiners. You can share the book with anyone, and if they eventually start stacking with Swan, you'll get credit for that referral. It's really a great deal. Spread Bitcoin knowledge and Swan Bitcoin, the best and safest way to start accumulating Bitcoin. So head over to swanbitcoin.com slash freebook now to claim your free copy of Inventing Bitcoin by Jan Pritzker. Introducing a new sponsor, HODL HODL, peer-to-peer exchange with a new lending platform, global, non-custodial, anonymous, and using Bitcoin multisig. This is a fascinating new product, allowing peer-to-peer lending and borrowing between users. Bitcoin is locked up in multisig escrow, and the loan is funded using a stablecoin, such as USDT. If you are a HODLer who wants some liquidity without selling your Bitcoin, this is now another option to get fiat stablecoin liquidity. Or if you've got stablecoins and on interest, this is Bitcoin DeFi. With HODL HODL's Lend platform, you set your own terms and put up offers depending on how long you want to borrow or lend and interest rates. Go and check it out at lend.hodlhodl.com. Knox is a Bitcoin custodian dedicated to ensuring their insurance protection covers the full value of their customers' assets. For example, suppose a fiduciary wants to hold $250 million of Bitcoin with Knox. Knox will seek to obtain $250 million of insurance dedicated exclusively to that account and adjustable to volatility. No fractional coverage or narrow scope. Insurance for what it's worth. A tool to transfer risk. If you are a Bitcoin company, investment fund, trust, or family office, check out Knox for your insured custody. Go to knoxcustody.com. Preston, welcome back to the show. Hey, Stefan. Always great to be here. Preston, it's always a pleasure to chat with you. And uh, today we've got a few interesting themes that we can chat about. I think some of the discussion recently has been around this concept of, well, Bitcoin has these four-year cycles. And what's the likelihood that this is the final cycle? What would the final cycle look like now we can make you know some of these different arguments for and against and maybe we can explore some of those ideas uh but i guess high level how are you thinking about that idea well i think the most important thing is that whatever idea you got you better hold it pretty loosely um (laughs) because uh there's no way to really especially where we're at right now to have any idea one way or the other but i think it's fun to kind of tease out the the various uh, courses that it could take. Um, I know whenever I'm thinking about the value of a business, I'm always kind of using an analogy of a hurricane path where you're, you're trying to project where it's going to make landfall five days in advance. And with a stock or a currency like Bitcoin, you're trying to understand what that left and right boundary would be for your model and then where your most likely is. And so I love teasing out things like that and trying to consider what the environment might look like as we kind of move forward. 
Excellent. I love the idea of trying to think, well, what's the boundary left and right? So if we were to think in a Bitcoin context, what do you think the left and right would be? So I guess in this case, it would be something like what's the earliest you could imagine the hyper-Bitcoinization process completing versus the latest? What do you see that as? You're saying like it going all the way, like yeah, total uh, global dumps. I think on the early side... I think it could be this incoming cycle, this four-year cycle that we're currently in. I think it could happen within this cycle. I think on the long end, I'd be surprised for it to go more than this cycle and the next one. So, you know, I'd say seven and a half years would be probably the the long end for me. And I think there's a lot of people that would disagree with that. Yeah, I think a lot of people would. There might be a lot of people who would say, oh, surely, Preston, it can't be that early, right? Yeah, I think I think you're, you know, I don't know if you asked a hundred people, I think most of them would probably say, "Oh, it's going to be longer than that." And I, for me, the the reason why I guess I'm more bullish, I think it could happen faster, is just because I think that the backdrop of everything that's happening is just so dire, particularly the the fixed income market, uh, currencies around the world. I just I don't know how they're going to be able to keep the trust glued onto what's happening. I, I don't know how that's possibly going to happen for more than seven years or seven and a half years. Right. And I think part of that for me comes down to, well, I think I've experienced in this in following the Austrians and Goldbargs who have been saying the same thing for a long time. And I mean, I consider myself a, a student of Austrian economics, obviously, uh, but the awkward position that many find themselves in is criticizing the current system and saying it's unsustainable. And yet they find a way to keep the party going, right? So, for example, people in 2008 and nine were saying, oh, look, this is not a good thing. Uh, and then here we are with, you know, at all-time highs on, you know, stock markets and things like that. So how do you sort of marry those two ideas? So going back to 2008, your 10-year treasury was at 5 5.5% 5 before the, the 2008 crash. So you had a lot of interest rate left on even the 10 year and then your that the yield curve in 2008 beginning of 2008 was flat so i i was saying 5 5 and 1/2% it was somewhere in that range but it was across the entire duration of the bond yield curve today you're nowhere near that i mean you're you're pressing down below 1% on the 10 year treasury and and we're seeing the printing accelerate so i don't know how they're going to be able to keep the lid on that uh going any higher especially the way that the on the fiscal side they keep obligating money and ob, debt obligations so you know i don't i don't know how they're going to allow interest rates to go up they're going to have to keep them depressed and down and so i think that that's really the big part to all of this that uh, and it's just not here in the us most of the rates around the world are negative and you didn't have any of that in 2008 you didn't have any of that prior to 2008 so that's where this gets very different and significantly different. And if people aren't thinking about that that piece of it, I mean, come on, think about it. If you have a negative interest bond, you're you're signing up for a contract to lose money. You're signing up for a guarantee to to have less money. So I just don't know how long that charade can last. And I mean, we're at the tune of negative sixteen trillion dollar sixteen trillion dollars of negative interest uh, debt out there, fixed income debt. So how long can they keep that charade going? And, and I think this is the part that, that I, I think is really important to consider. In the past, you didn't have this thing that looked like a rocket ship of 
buying power right next to it, right? So 2008, yeah, you had gold and gold went up initially with the crash. Gold got punished just because it's a liquidity squeeze, right? But as soon as as soon as they pumped all the liquidity and the fiat units back into the system, I think gold did two or 300% from there, right? It went way up, but that's nothing, absolutely nothing, a speck compared to what I kind of expect out of Bitcoin in the coming year, as far as a percent in nominal fiat terms, how much it's going to go up. So when, you, when you're comparing something that's a guaranteed contract to lose money to something that is I don't even know if a rocket ship is the right term. I mean, it's like a warp. It's like a buying power warp, uh, <laughs> what I suspect we're about to see. And so how can the market keep trust in something when it when that's the contrast, right? Yeah. And so I guess maybe the only other point would just be something like, well, you know, maybe they managed to keep us in financial repression for a little while longer, right? So people, they just sort of try to keep the economy in a sort of, stasis and we have this sort of japanification or zombified companies that are just kind of lurching forward but they're just not they're not really doing really well uh, uh, unless the unless they're the obvious kind of standout you know amazon and google and so on uh, but we just have a whole heap of companies who are just kind of staggering forward i guess that's perhaps one scenario what do you think about that possibility for sustained financial repression i think that's exactly what they're going to try they're going to have to in order to try to keep things calm. And I mean, that's how these, these types of situations now, granted, we've never had it on a global scale, but we've had it on a national scale all many a times throughout history. It's exactly what they try to do. They try to print, they try to provide that liquidity. They try to uh, choose the, the least of all the bad options, the, 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 the least bad option that's out there amongst all bad options. And uh, I think that's exactly what they're going to try to do. That's what they've been trying to do since really 2008. Yeah, and perhaps the other aspect of it is also how much will they be able to corral people into the central bank digital currencies or the, uh, the, the their own little controlled contained system that enables them to carry on the financial repression for a little bit longer and keep the party going just that little bit longer? Well, I think that to to do that, they have to have something that's probably already in the works or in a testing phase. I don't know how familiar you are with government acquisition work as far as procuring and standing something like that up, but my experience is that it's pretty darn slow. And now we're talking about doing that for a currency that cannot fail and cannot have mistakes. If that system is going to somehow rise to the occasion, I would suspect it almost already has to be have been built. On top of that, and I think more importantly than that, let's just say it did exist today, they're still going to debase the the units inside of that protocol or or whatever you'd want to call that system that they'd have. I mean, it'd be a closed loop system that they'd be controlling the, the units. They have to continue to debase it simply because the habits of those elected officials, not just in the United States, but all over the world, is to spend money to debase the currency in order to promote the cost of their goods and services to be lower than everybody else. So that's not going to change. So whether you're using a digital currency, I mean, we already are using a digital currency that they're already manipulating the, the baseline to. So uh, the fact that they're going to put a fancy branding on it, calling it a cryptocurrency or whatever, I mean, I, that's pretty much all I see the difference being is that it's a different branding that that ironically or unironically, depending on how you're looking at it, 
they're doing that to create trust, right? Why else would you call it something different other than to, to garner trust, which implies that the, the, the system that has been used does not have trust. So I find that really interesting. Yeah, and it just seems a little bit of cargo cult science, right? So that people are talking about Bitcoin and then you see, you know, the ECB and these big central banks come out and talk about, you know, CBDC, like it's a big new innovation when really it's essentially a lipstick on a pig. So it's a funny way, it's a funny world that we're living in that that is part of the conversation now. And, you know, Jerome Powell's openly talking about CBDC and how they want to do some research on it before they come out with anything on that. And it's just a very funny thing. If anything, Stefan, if anything, it speeds it up because now you get faster clearance of settlement times than what you had before. So if they're now doing digital currencies and doing it through a blockchain or, you know, if it's, if it's, if it's centralized, can we even call it a blockchain? But they're going to speed up clearance times of, of being able to pay people. The people are then going to be able to transfer that into whatever else they, they want to put it into. So if they want to move it over to Bitcoin, they can just do it quicker. So one could make the argument that they're actually going to accelerate the speed of adoption to a truly decentralized protocol that is acting as a form of store of value, which is Bitcoin. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to see uh, definitely more and more people come into the Bitcoin world. Obviously, I think you and I and many of my listeners are obviously already there in terms of wanting a Bitcoin standard and so on. Uh, I guess maybe one idea that comes to my mind also is my friend Vijay Boyapati, and he's spoken about this idea around waves of adoption, right? So every wave, it each time it's it you can access more people, right? So in the early days, it was cypherpunks and you know drug markets and libertarians, and then it became kind of macro people and you know, over time, it's kind of that circle of users is growing. And so it's kind of like each wave, there's only so many people that you can attract in because there's only so many people who are mentally ready to take that leap to to buy Bitcoin and to hold it and to use it and do all these things with it. So I guess probably in my view, that's the strongest argument I can think of, of why this coming cycle, let's say the next year or two, uh, is not the final cycle. However, I, I'm curious what you think in terms of people being mentally ready to take that Bitcoin you know, orange bill. Well, at the end of the day, it comes down to trust. When do we feel like you're going to have such a headline in the news and trust is, is so eroded that it's a commonplace discussion in every single household around the world that people were saying, hey, these currencies are broke and this other thing over here that just keeps gaining value seems to be the solution to this. That that day is going to come and it's just a matter of when it's going to play out. So for, for a historical reference, you can go back and you can look at Germany in the 1920s when it had its hyperinflation event. And when you look at the chart, and anyone can Google this, just type in Germany 1920s gold mark, you know, price chart. And when you see the the chart, it just goes parabolic. It has a lot of growth early on, and, the, and it really kind of started in 1918. Uh, you had a lot of growth, let's just say a, a one, uh, one gold mark uh, when compared to paper marks. One of those in 1918 uh, through 1918 was around the, the, a one, and it went up to about a five. Then by 1990, a year later, uh, the end of 1919, you were at about 10. Then by the end of 1921, really kind of getting into 1922, it got up to 100. And you still didn't have this scenario where the Germans were, were saying, this is hyperinflation. They were just saying, this, our currency is just getting crushed, right? 
they they still felt like it could be salvaged at that point in 1922. And this all started in 1918. And so you went from a debasement of one to a hundred, right? But where it really started coming off the tracks is whenever it started getting up to a thousand and then the 10,000 mark after it went from one to 10,000, which took one, two, three, about uh, five and a half years. When it passed through that 10,000 mark is when it really came off the rails. And I pulled up a, uh, this is a obviously translated from the, from a newspaper, from a Frankfurt newspaper in 1922, as this passing through like the 10,000 mark occurred. And this is, this is what was written back then. German economic life is dominated by a struggle over the survival of the mark. Is it to remain the German currency or is it doomed to extinction? During the past few months, foreign currencies have replaced it as units of account and domestic transactions to a wholly unforeseen extent. The habit of reckoning in dollars, especially has established itself not only in firm inter internal accounting practice, but above all as the method of price quotation in trade, industry, and agriculture. When I'm trying to think about what are going to be the cues of this thing potentially going all the way, I think the cues are something that we've talked a lot about. I know you and I, Stefan, in this past year, and that has really kind of become a theme in the Bitcoin community, especially on Twitter, which is this unit of account. When I think whenever you start seeing CNBC discussions, Wall Street Journal articles with this in the headline, that is Bitcoin the new unit of account? Is the dollar dead? Is the euro dead? Those kind of things in the news. If Germany's any indication of of where that separation occurred, where where all trust was lost, that's what the headline sounded like right as that happened. Uh, so I think that that's an important consideration. That's what people need to be paying attention to, because as soon as that narrative starts to take hold, and it's and it's commonplace in financial news and business. You better believe people are thinking about what can I do to protect myself? Do I think that those headlines could happen this summer uh, in a year from now? I do. I think that those headlines could happen, especially if we watch Bitcoin go to 100,000. I don't know how the financial news, I mean, you, you're seeing how they're handling this recent run, right? Like it just hit 13,000 and it, and it came from like 11,000 and it was all through the news. Uh, Paul Tudor Jones was on Squawk Box. They're talking about how much he likes it and all this kind of stuff. That move was nothing. I mean, you you were in the game in the 2017 bull run, right? Like this is this what we've seen here in the last year is nothing. And if and if history is any indicator as to how much this is going to run in the coming year, watch out and get ready for those headlines. And I I kind of suspect if those really start to take root, the trust is the part that I'm really paying close attention to. I'm paying close attention to big bond investors talking about how they're taking a portion of their bond position and reallocating it to act as a hedge against inflation. Those kind of things are going to be the things that really are good indicators as to where this is potentially going on this on this incoming run. Right. And so, yeah, that's a really interesting way to parallel, uh, to look back into Germany, the history and uh, a great book I'm sure you've read also is When Money Dies by Adam Ferguson. Uh, and there's some really interesting cultural shifts and things that were happening during that time period. So uh, at one point, the internal depreciation of the mark 
was lagging behind its fall abroad. And so Germany was actually a haven for tourism, right? And so it's kind of a funny cultural phenomenon, I guess, that we'll see. Um, and perhaps we see this in other countries around the world also, where they are going through currency trouble. In the first few years, it actually is a really cool place for tourists to go because they can go there and get you know, really fantastic service, best hotel, excellent restaurants, all for very cheap. Uh, but then later, it, it gets worse and worse. But I think it's different in this sense, because there's a few different factors here. Because firstly, we're looking at a global phenomenon here, as opposed to just what's going on in one particular country. So in your view, how does that change it? For example, if it's happening in a more global context, people could argue that, okay, fine, I, I just I won't use my local fiat money. I'll just use the US dollar instead. Yeah. And I think that that's where this might even be more profound because the narrative isn't just going to be in a single country. You're going to see the narrative just slowly trickle through the countries that are finding their currencies collapsing first. So Turkey, Argentina, you can go on. There's, there's a bunch of them. Venezuela. When you look at these price charts in terms of their fiat currency, Bitcoin's already making new all-time highs, right? My opinion is, is this continues to play out. Those price charts are going to be commonplace amongst all nations. They're all going to be looking at these price charts and saying, why is every single currency on the planet getting debased relative to each other, right? It's, it's, it's going to be a crazy experience. And it's going to be something that the, the news stories are going to start in some of those locations, and they're just going to compound and proliferate around the globe as this continues to amplify. Yeah. And so I think as people in those countries that are already hitting Bitcoin all-time highs in their local currency, they're going to start thinking, at least some of them will start thinking about Bitcoin and holding Bitcoin and so on. Uh, but then that opens up the question around technology, ease of use, how easy is Bitcoin to use and secure today uh, versus that versus the necessity, right? So when someone really, really needs something, they'll go and spend the time to learn. Uh, but you know, Bitcoin today can be difficult to correctly secure and do all these things. What's your thought there on the level of technological progress with Bitcoin and the ease of use, the user experience uh, versus the necessity? Well, when you look at the, the general population, most people don't have any type of positive earnings power. Your typical household, not just in the US, but literally all over the globe, they've uh, they've been conditioned into spending whatever they've got as fast as they can. And then if they can borrow beyond that, they will uh, because they've, they've been incentivized to, do, to act that way. Where you look at the locations where free cash flows are being generated in any type of meaningful way, it's on businesses' income statements and then being plowed into their into their balance sheets. That's where the meaningful amount of, of uh, movement of free cash flows is actually at. And like we talked about, oh my gosh, probably six months, nine months ago, Stefan, that's where I've kind of suspected is going to end up. And so we're starting to see that. I don't think we're seeing it in any kind of meaningful way. We've seen a few companies that have done it in, in meaningful ways. But as far as collectively in publicly traded businesses, uh, you're just now starting to see that become a point of discussion in boardrooms. And you know, when you, when you think of it from a technical standpoint, how hard is it to secure Bitcoins or have some company secure them on your behalf. I don't see that as being any type of roadblock for this incoming cycle because when I'm thinking about how 
companies are going to buy these, I mean, it's just, it's, it's kind of a non-issue as, as far as I'm concerned. And then on the individual level, the people who, who have a significant amount of money, they're going to figure out a way to, to, to stack them. Uh, I don't think that that's going to prevent somebody who has any type of meaningful money to put into it is, is going to stop them from doing it. Yeah, you're right to point out the distinction there between individuals and companies. And also in these high inflation environments, if we look historically, as you mentioned, uh, the 1920s Germany, or if we look at uh, Zimbabwe, for example, a more recent historical example, we can see examples where people try to protect themselves against the uh, depreciation of their uh, of their currency and potentially of their net worth. And so they, they look at things like buying real assets or potentially taking out loans in the local currency, which is in some sense kind of going short. And so listeners, you can check out my recent episode uh, with Russ Lamberti and Philip Haslam. We talk about their book, When Money Destroys Nations. Um, but those are some examples that uh, individuals and businesses can undertake to try and protect themselves. Uh, do you have any thoughts around with the most likely ways that people will do this? I mean, is it just going to be kind of like a Michael Saylor style, just buy Bitcoin and hold it in the treasury? You know, that was, I think his example was not the common one for a publicly traded company. For private companies, I could see that all day long. But for a publicly traded company, uh, he was in a unique position where he has a, uh, an ability to outvote everybody. So he can do bold things like that. But most publicly traded companies don't have uh, such a concentration of voting rights. So I think what you're going to see is a much more Twitter, uh, I'm sorry, uh, PayPal, like, I'm sorry, again, I, <laughs> I misspoke again, Jack Dorsey Square. Uh, that's how I think you're going to see more of these publicly traded companies roll out is the way that Square did it, where they, they didn't take a huge position, but they took uh, an initial position where they purchased, uh, what was it? One, they're 4,709 Bitcoin. So they had a $50 million basis. I think it's up to about $60 million today as far as its value. I think that's what you're going to kind of see to be much more standard as the year goes on. And I think as you get more tech companies that do this, and I definitely think there will be more tech companies that do this. We just saw the PayPal announcement that they're going to start offering it. Now, whether they put it on their treasury or put it on their balance sheet or not, that's you know yet to be seen. I would suspect that they will. But as that continues to play out, I think you're going to see companies that start off by dipping their toe in the water. And then next thing you know, they're going to be putting their feet in the water. And next thing you know, they're standing waist high in the water. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and most of it's going to be just because of the the performance that it gives their stock is just going to be unprecedented. I, we, we've seen what's happened with Michael Saylor's company. Uh, and I think that that is just literally the tip of the iceberg as to the performance that you'll start seeing out of MicroStrategy here in the coming year. And it does also open up that conversation around whether people will start buying MicroStrategy shares to have some exposure to Bitcoin also. Yeah, I think that I think a lot of investors don't have access like they their only access is through GBTC. They don't necessarily want to go create their own. Uh, they don't want to go to like a Kraken or whatever because it's just too much work. They don't necessarily think that they understand it. So they're just looking at an easy solution that they can do through their existing trading account. And so they're going to they're going to find investors that are just going to plow into things like micro strategy to get some type of exposure to it. Now, as my opinion is, is, is what, as the cycle matures and we really start to see the, the price run, I'm not so sure that uh, people are going to be so lackadaisical in their 
in their way that they're gaining exposure to it. I think they're going to take a much more active approach. But yeah, that's that's kind of how I see it. Back to the interview with Preston in a moment. Check out bitcoinblackfriday.com, a project from the team behind Bitcoin Magazine and the Bitcoin 2021 conference. It's a celebration of the growing Bitcoin economy. On the site, you can find active deals for up to 50% off on your favorite Bitcoin gear and other merchants that accept Bitcoin. And it doesn't stop with spending Bitcoins. The Fold team has teamed up with Bitcoin Black Friday to bring you a special promo for the much-awaited Bitcoin back card. Spend fiat and earn Bitcoin. Now, if you sign up for early access for the Fold card on Bitcoin Black Friday, you will be entered into a raffle to win a whole Bitcoin. That's right. Go to BitcoinBlackFriday.com right now and sign up for the Fold Bitcoin Rewards Card to enter a chance to win an entire Bitcoin. If you're interested in the idea of Bitcoin native financial services, go and look up Unchained Capital. Unchained are doing great work to make multi-signature accessible. So if you're thinking about your Bitcoin security, why not consider multi-signature with Unchained? You can build it yourself, or if you want assistance, there is a Vault Concierge onboarding package. You can have hardware wallet devices mailed to you and have guided setup calls to build your Vault together. Use code Lavera for a discount there. And also, Unchained have a range of other open source contributions in the ecosystem, such as Caravan and also Hermit. So if you're interested, go and check out my recent interview with Joe and Drew from the team and go to unchained-capital.com to find out more. Yeah, so they may dip their toe in the water with this kind of orange you know, orange coin exposure without actually holding any and then eventually learn, okay, I actually need to learn how to take custody myself and do all those more advanced uh, things to sort of truly do Bitcoin. Uh, but another question that came to my mind as well is when companies are buying Bitcoin, there is that question of whether they will be strong hand holders or whether they will be weak hands who sell at the first sign of trouble. Do you have any thoughts on contrasting whether an individual who's an individual hodler who's ideologically or just interested in Bitcoin and is hardened through time versus a company holding where perhaps they will face pressures from their board or their senior you know, executive management and directors and so on who will say, oh, I want to cut my losses and run that kind of thing. Yeah. I don't see them be, them trading it like you've seen people on Twitter that trade it. These decisions are very strategic. Uh, these companies, the boards they meet, they're looking at things that they can buy and hold for, through a long period of time. If they're taking a position to have an inflation hedge, they're looking at that as something that's taking years to play out. So they're not going to they're not going to just buy it and then a couple months later offload their position. They're they're buying it to hold it for a long period of time, just like Michael Saylor said, I plan on holding it for a hundred years. I yeah, I, I don't see them trading around it hardly at all. I think when they take a position, they're gonna hold it. They're gonna see how it plays out through the quarter, uh, maybe two quarters to see how it how it matures. And then if they're ahead in the position, they're probably gonna be looking to maybe even increase their position. Yeah, so it'll be that that dip the toe in the water and then decide to take a bigger position. I suppose, though, if this ends up not being the final cycle, as it were, uh, and I'm just picking numbers out of out of the air, right? I'm not saying this is going to be the top and so on, but let's hypothetically let's say it, it gets to like 150,000, and you know a whole bunch of companies all try to buy in there, and then it peaks at 200,000, and then it crashes down to whatever 40,000 or 50,000, right? Again, I'm just picking random numbers just for the sake of discussion. But then would you see it like some of those companies who may have bought in at 150,000 are now really feeling the pinch because now it's down at 50,000? 
Yeah, I think that could uh, that could change uh, their exposure for sure because the the time frames, if it's anything like previous four year cycles, that plays out in longer than a year's period of time. So you could see companies that would jump ship and sell their coins and uh, just go through the process, but just more on a on a more macro level. It'd just be a fractal of what we saw on the previous four year cycle only, instead of it being individuals, it could be companies. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, although there'd be some, although to that point, the companies who are earlier and into it now, for example, Michael Saylor in that scenario would still be very much up on his investments. So <laughs> that's for sure. So guess- yeah. It, the value, you know, if I was going to get into talking about the value of businesses, because I was seeing a lot of comments on Twitter about this, is like, how do you value? Uh, micro strategy when they're sitting on so much Bitcoin, and especially when you compare it to how much free cash flows they're kicking off. How do you value that as a stock? And people are buying it to gain some exposure to Bitcoin, but how much exposure to Bitcoin and, and like all those things. And uh, you don't mind me getting into this uh, part of just going in this direction, do you, Stefan? Of course. No, no, let's do it. Yeah. So when I, when I think about value and, and this is something that I've noticed in the community, a lot of people are technically oriented by price charts when they're looking at things and not necessarily uh, looking at a company and doing, you know, a strong analysis as to what the value is that the company is actually able to produce in the marketplace and then compare that relative to all the other companies that they could invest in. So when I'm doing this, the, the example, and I think what I'll do just to kind of illustrate this, I'll talk about microstrategy before Bitcoin. Then I'll talk about microstrategy after Bitcoin to kind of compare and contrast the valuation process. So the way I like to talk about valuation whenever I talk to somebody who's just learning it for the first time, I like to use an example of a money machine. So let's say that I was going to sell you a money machine. Most people, when they hear that, they get all excited. Like, okay, sure. I'll, I'll pay anything for that. Right. But (laughs) the the question really comes down to is how much money is the money machine uh, producing in a year's period of time? If I'm going to sell you a money machine, let's say I sell you a money machine for a hundred thousand dollars. Your immediate question should be, well, how much money can it print in a year? And if I come back to you and I say, ah, the money machine can print a thousand dollars a year. That's it, right? It's a money machine, but it only prints a thousand dollars a year. Is that a deal that you want to take? Because <laughs> payback period of a hundred years, no. <laughs> payback period of a hundred years, and it, that's a one percent return, right, on an annual basis. And that's assuming, and we're obviously making this really simple that like all the costs and everything will just say that it it, it never breaks and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, your payback period's a hundred years. So now, if I if I would come back to you and say, well, it produces thirty thousand dollars a year. Now it's it's much more uh, appetizing for you to take on this this ownership of this money machine for a hundred thousand dollars. And so when you're thinking about a business, I always like to use that example because that's what a business is. It's it's a money machine. It, it, at least if it's doing its job right, it should be a money machine that's that's printing a certain amount of money every year. So when we look at micro strategy and we we use that same exact example and we say, well, how much are you paying for the micro strategy money machine? And today, if you were going to buy every share out on the market, it's $1.7 billion to own all the shares. And so then the, the following question is, is, well, how much money is the money is the micro strategy money machine producing every year? And the answer is about $30 million, roughly, right? Every year it changes a little bit, but around $30 million. So yeah. what's fascinating is 
in the example that I previously said, where you're buying a, a money machine for $100,000 and it only produced $1,000 a year, micro strategy, you could buy it for $100,000 and instead of getting $1,000, you're getting $1,700 a year based on the price and based on the net income or the profit that the company's producing. And so a person would hear that and they say, oh my God, that's that's pretty crappy, right? Like that, that's not that good. But what a lot of people that aren't intimately involved in the stock market don't realize is that's pretty much how the entire stock market is priced right now. It's priced at that multiple of, of that kind of return, about a 2% return is what the US stock market is priced at. It might even be worse right now after COVID. All your market participants that are holding stock today are signing up to buy a $100,000 uh, money machine and they're going to make about 1000 to $2,000 a year with their money machine. It's going to take a hundred years for the, for those money machines to to basically retain the, the the earnings that you're buying them for. Now, what's fascinating about Michael Saylor's company is he's done something very different than everybody else, and he went out and Michael was sitting on a tank load of free cash flows of of retained earnings at this point. Right, he had four hundred and twenty-five million dollars of of retained earnings, liquid retained earnings on his balance sheet. Let me tell you, folks, not too many companies that have that type of market cap of a one point seven million dollar market cap have you know a quarter of it sitting in like cash. <laughs> and Michael did, and so he goes out there and he buys. He not only does he go and buy some Bitcoin, but he literally goes and buys. Like all of his liquid cash, he goes and buys completely all of it Bitcoin. Now his company goes and, uh, you know, since buying it, which what is, what's it been a quarter, three months, Stefan, would you say at this yeah, point? Yeah, roughly. Yeah. Yeah. Just I'd under. say a quarter. So in three months now, granted, this is unrealized gain, so they could go down, but today he's already made in unrealized gains, $66 million in three months. Okay. <laughs> Double the annual normal earnings. He, that's exactly right. His his bottom line for the year is thirty million dollars, and he's already doubled it. So you had a company that was that was making thirty million a year, right? It was it was basically making the one thousand seven hundred dollars in the money uh, machine example, and he's tripled it. Okay, so instead of getting, a, we'll just round it up and say he was getting a two percent return. Now he's getting a six percent return as a as a as a analyst, as a security analyst, how do you value a company that just tripled their bottom line in a quarter, right? So if we were really going to do this as an annualized thing, you'd multiply that by four. It's not triple. It's, it's way higher than that, right? Now we're doing all this public math, so I got to be careful. But that's some serious stuff to think about. Now, when we think about, well, where would the company be in a year from now? Based on what you and I know about scarcity and the having and all that kind of stuff and kind of what we suspect is going to play out here in the coming year. I, I'm just going to tell you, I, in my expectation in a year from now, Bitcoin's going to be at $100,000. That's that's my opinion, right? I could be way off. But if that scenario is true, Michael Saylor is going to have $3.8 billion of unrealized gains in just his Bitcoin alone, okay? $3.8 billion. That would take his company 111 years to produce as far as profit. You know, all the assets on his balance sheet minus the Bitcoin that's sitting there, it would take those assets, those people performing the, the those jobs 
111 years to produce that much bottom line profit and retain it. How do you value something like that? I I don't have a good answer for you, but I but I can tell you it's drastically different than how you're valuing everything else in the marketplace. Because everything else in the marketplace, you're buying the money machine for $100,000 and you're only making 1,000 or 2,000 dollars for every company pretty much in the entire stock market in in general terms like the S&P 500 and such. So you know, where, where do I expect his company to be in, in a year from now? Well, um, if, if the calculation we've got for the Bitcoin is right and it's $3.8 billion, then you stack on top of that, how the market was valuing that $30 million stream of cash flow before you come up with around a 4.3 or $4.5 billion market cap valuation, uh, which would put it at about a $430 share price. Uh, in a year from now, at a minimum, for me, at a minimum, that's how I would be thinking about the value of that business that I would expect to see in a year from now, at a minimum. So it's it's pretty interesting because uh, normally when you're valuing a business, it, it really comes down to how much are they putting off the bottom line on their income statement. And then the assets are just kind of looked at very differently. Uh, when you start getting into the balance sheet, typically you're looking at a business that's failing and you're going to try to repurpose or resell the assets and try to recuperate more than what you paid for them in, in the book value. Um, but man, it's, it's, it's a really interesting time in security analysis because I kind of suspect the companies that are sitting on these big balance sheets on these big Bitcoin balance sheets are going to start to be looked at more closely and with more of a premium than the traditional assets of the company that they typically produce on the income statement side. And boy, we've never seen anything like that. It's really exciting as a person that likes to study this kind of stuff. Yeah, I, th- I think that you gave a really great explanation there, Preston. And I think maybe expressed in another way, people sometimes uh, people who are looking at the stock market and thinking, okay, what sort of stocks am I buying? Typically, or a common one is CAPE, right? Cyclically, cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratio. And typically, if the market is already very high, then people have, a, they logically, their future expectation for the return possible by investing in stocks is quite low. And that might potentially be what causes them to start looking in these, looking at other possibilities, such as buying Bitcoin directly or looking at companies that are taking this kind of approach, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Well, think about uh, if, if what we described is true as far as Bitcoin's ability to run, think about how much leverage he's going to have to just do acquisitions of competitors, because you don't have to have the full amount to, to buy out a competitor. You just have to have a, a portion of that. And if you're sitting on that much liquid uh, buying power, uh, three billion plus for a company that used to only have half a billion. I mean, that is a significant difference in their ability to compete. Now let's just change gears. And I mean, MicroStrategy is a it's a tiny company compared to the Apples and the Amazons and all these other big tech companies that are sit- literally sitting on hundreds of billions of dollars that they could drop into the market. So like Michael Saylor just bought $425 million worth of Bitcoin. Apple could step in and literally take a $10 billion position in Bitcoin. And and it would be viewed as a conservative. I think I think it'd be viewed maybe not as conservative because that would be, what would that be? 
5% of their, I don't know how much marketable securities are currently sitting on. I know it's over a hundred billion. Like Berkshire Hathaway would be, I, I know there's a little bit better. They're slightly over, uh, I think they're at $150 billion in marketable security. So if they step in and they take a 10 billion, which I don't suspect is going to happen with Berkshire, but just for the numbers purpose, right? They come in with a $10 billion position. That's less than 10%. And I think that, I think Apple's is even higher than that. So those companies have the capacity to do that. They ha- also have the technical prowess of people sitting there on their staff that can figure this stuff out. You and I can can look at this technically and it makes sense to us. If you don't think that some of the smartest programmers sitting at Google and Amazon and other places aren't going to take a closer look at this stuff as companies like MicroStrategy and many others start stacking it on their balance sheet, we're all crazy because they are. And uh, boy, they've got the money to throw at this thing. And so I think it's going to become... I think by the time you get into the second quarter of 21, uh, I think it's going to be the talk of talk of who's stacking most of this stuff as as they as much as this stuff as they can and putting it on their balance sheet. <laughs> yeah, so I think uh I don't know the exact numbers but I think uh, just from a quick search it looks like Apple has something like 200 billion in cash yeah. on hand. And so I mean if they were to buy what is that 10 so billion that's 5%, like 5%, yeah. Yeah. That'd be 5%. So it, it would be quite a reasonable amount for them to buy. Uh so I guess my next question to you Preston is what kinds of companies are well placed like is it that as i think as you mentioned earlier microstrategy were uniquely well placed in that michael saylor has a high ownership share of the company and thus can have a little bit more leeway in how he runs the show uh i guess the counter might be something like some of these larger companies they're more like the Titanic. They just can't turn that quickly. Yeah. I think that, I mean, if there's one thing that Silicon Valley has showed us, it's that, you know, there's a lot of blood in the water and everyone's sniffing each other's tails and they're all, they're all so innovative, but at the end of the day, maybe they really aren't. And they're just trying to keep pace with everybody else. So I think if one of them starts doing it, then all of them are going to start doing a doing it and then it's going to maybe get a little competitive uh, especially as the performance and what it's doing to their, to their stock price and, and whatnot is, uh, uh, reinforcing of the decisions that were previously made. So I think that a really important consideration with all of this is you have to have free cash flows, period. If you're a company, which half of them out there are not profitable, maybe even more now that we're through COVID, that was pre-COVID, half of the companies don't even make a profit. If you're not making money, you're either selling things to come up with money to allocate into this, or you have positive free cash flows, right? So the companies, and, and this is where I think this is really exciting because the, the big issue that we have is since 2008, the zombies have been kept alive at all costs. I mean, the amount of manipulation that has happened by central bankers, not just in the US, all over the globe to keep zombie companies alive is, in, in my humble opinion, disgusting. Part of this thing that we call capitalism is you have to let businesses that don't add value, that the market doesn't value their products and services to fail. That is what creates the creative destruction of something else to rise up out of the ashes and produce something that is valued. One of the things that I'm so excited about with Bitcoin is if you're not if you're not making free cash flows and you're not profitable, well, guess what? You can't freaking buy it, right? You can't buy it. And uh, if you're not stacking them, in my humble opinion, you're about to get just decapitated. I mean, I look at Michael Saylor's company, he has no issues whatsoever of something like that happening to him. But when you look at some of these other companies that aren't producing a bottom line, they're going to just get clobbered. 
Yeah, so it's uh, certainly going to be very kind of polarized then between the those able to invest in Bitcoin and those not able to invest in Bitcoin. Maybe one other point is that let's say at a professional money management level, there might be people who are reluctant to buy into a crazy bull run. So for example, you know, people might be like, you know, they're wanting a deal. They don't want to be uh, buying uh, into something that they feel like they, they, but basically they don't want to be risking that they're buying the top, right? So mm-hmm. I guess- what are the kind of main <laughs> ways that people will try to manage that, right? I can manage it with some knowledge. I mean, you you pose such an awesome question because I can see this thing running through 30,000 and people just being like, this is not right. This makes no sense. Your traditional money managers, they're going to be like, this is idiotic. This isn't backed by anybody. You know, all the, all the 2015 arguments that we've all heard, <laughs> they're all going to be saying them at nauseum. And they're going to be saying, well, I'm going to wait for the next dip. And then the next dip's going to happen, and you know what's going to happen in their mind. They're going to say, "Well, maybe these were the tulips, right?" After when the dip plays out, then it's then it's becoming tulips, and then it has just a snapback next run to forty thousand, and they're just like, "Oh, I'll buy the next one," and then it just keeps playing out, and then they just keep sitting on their hands and they never do anything. And for somebody who's never uh, experienced one of these bull runs, and we were saying earlier, you hadn't seen nothing yet. Um, <laughs> When these things start to run like that and they're moving, you know, this one's going to move in, in multi-thousand dollar, $5,000 kind of days there, especially at the end. People are just going to, they're not going to know what to do because they're going to feel like whatever they do, it's going to be the wrong decision and it's just going to keep going up. And so I don't know what to tell those money managers other than you might want to study some of these models and kind of understand where these these price orbits. I don't know if anybody else is using that term, but that's what I started calling it. They might want to understand where those are at to manage their risk. Now, if this thing starts running over a hundred thousand, I honestly don't know what to tell you. At that point, I'm just going to stop doing interviews and I'm probably not going to talk too much on Twitter or anything because I honestly don't know what to tell a person if this thing starts running over a hundred thousand. I would tell you to pay attention to the news headlines and and what all the talking heads are saying. And if, if people are talking about the failure of fiat currencies at nauseum, well, maybe it's going all the way, but I I just don't know. And that's going to be I think that's going to be the really hard point for people to know whether they should buy or not. I think anything below that, I mean, I know I'll keep buying. Yeah, it um it really mirrors the process for many individuals. As you were saying, that was a process for a lot of people who spoke to me even in the last, you know, 2017 and stuff. People would be like, "Oh, is this the right time? Like, I'll just wait." Oh, you know, and they would just, you know, they would constantly trick themselves and yeah. just basically play themselves. Whereas now, I think at least amongst the let's call it the hardcore Bitcoiner set, I think they are more set on the idea of dollar cost averaging and auto stacking and regularly accumulating. Uh, and so maybe that is going to be a similar kind of story where maybe it needs a cycle where companies make those kinds of mistakes. And then in the next cycle, that's when they've kind of figured it out. Oh, okay. Actually, the way you do this is you just regularly accumulate little chunks over time. And this, that's kind of how you manage it. But you're assuming there is a next cycle. <laughs> yes, I am. I mean, that's the that's the part that I I have no... I have no confidence in telling somebody that, yeah. that there's going to be a next cycle. Could there be? Of course. Of course. I mean, I'd put the odds at 50%, right? That we, that we do another one, but could it go all the way this time? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I mean, 
Yeah, it's, yeah. it's going to be a hard one. And I think when you look at into these adoption S-curves, that's another important thing to think about is, you know, the, the magic percentage is two and a half percent. And then you start getting into the hockey stick section of these adoption curves. And, and let's not fool ourselves. This is something that is going to be globally adopted. If it continues to provide the value proposition that I just don't know how that's going to get impaired between now and when I think this thing is going to start getting to the two and a half percent mark, it'd be, it would be, it would be insanely painful to see it go through a hundred and say, well, I'm going to wait for the next cycle. And then it, it goes to a million. <laughs> I, I, I just, I mean, I don't know what to tell somebody. It, it's going to be, it's going to be some very, very hard decisions to be made in about a year from now for, for a lot of folks. Yeah. That's a really hard thing to think about. I think for me, I'm probably like, I'm probably more like 90, 10. I think it's 90% chance that it's, you know, this is not the final cycle. Whereas I guess you're more at that kind of 50, 50 level. You think it's 50% chance that this is not the final cycle. I just think, I think that it's, it's going to have way less to do with how the protocol is functioning. Everything to date has been based on the four-year cycle and how it's, how it's executing fiat dollars fiat currency. I think that on this next one, uh, especially as it goes up into the these really high numbers that have a deep psychological effect on a lot of market participants, you combine that with the fact that it's been around for more than a decade at that point. You combine it with the fact that the bond market is contracts to lose money. You combine it with the idea that universal basic income is not going away and that everyone's just getting these, these checks in the mail, all over the globe, every single country. They're in a race to devalue. You have social unrest. You have all these things that the trend is suggesting are only going to get worse. And the name of the game for currency is one word. It's trust. I don't know. I, th- I, I really think it's grossly underestimated that it could go all the way on the next cycle. Yeah, but it's I'm, really I'm crazy to think about. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely open to both scenarios. Yeah, yeah, I mean absolutely. I think it's just kind of uh, it's kind of difficult because here's the other thing. What about government reactions, right? So, as an example, Raul Powell has spoken about how when you if you ask him about the government risk and stuff like that, he's sort of said, "Oh, look, it's not at the size yet that I would even worry about that." But let's say, you know, it, it you know, in this during this next cycle it starts to get to that size, are there actions that a government could take to potentially slow the adoption of Bitcoin. I think it's unlikely at this point that they could, I think it's highly unlikely that they could kill it. But is it possible that they could take some action that slows the adoption of Bitcoin such that it staves it off into the future? Or perhaps there might be some forcing factor in the sense that because Bitcoin exists, it might force governments to change on their side as well and find some way to be less inflationary. Maybe they would try to modify the financial system to try to sort of keep people inside it and give them some level of carrot or incentive to stay in the fiat world as opposed to coming into the Bitcoin world. What's your view on that kind of idea over this next cycle? I would just flip it on its head and and just say, what if governments are trying to, because come on, we, we can't kid ourselves. These government officials are going to realize that if they, if they start to do things to inhibit its adoption, and it becomes global money. They've literally just shot themselves straight in the leg in a race that they they need two very strong legs for. Would we potentially see the exact opposite play out of what you just described? And I think that that's, uh, when I think about the game theory, I mean, the last thing you want to do is if, if you see something that looks like it's emerging as a new unit of account for the world, and you're saying, ah, I'm going to 
I'm, I'm going to gimp myself out for this race, this epic race of proportions. I don't know that that's going to be necessarily how it's handled. I mean, when you look at how all the legal implications of this are being handled right now, they're kind of suggesting the opposite of what you said. Yeah, I agree with you there. I think uh, the recent OCC news and some of these other kind of milestones that we are reaching, I guess we could say, uh, it, it's very well possible that we start seeing governments get more involved in, say, Bitcoin mining and having their own Bitcoin mining operations or legally and officially having support for that kind of thing uh, where they want to try and promote it within their own country. And we're seeing that already in some countries around the world, uh, just not in like many countries, but yep, that maybe, potentially maybe could Maybe mining operations start to get nationalized. Sorry to interrupt you there, but yeah, maybe that's maybe that's what they start to do. Yeah, that's that's also a possibility. I mean, I, I, I've, we, we've heard those rumors of things going on in Venezuela like that, or uh, I think other countries as well, potentially Iran. I mean, the, the uh, challenge uh, yeah. is you can't, everyone has to do the same thing in order for that scenario to work. And I just don't see that possibly happening, especially when you look at it in the context of every country in the world has been a victim of dollar dominance for the last, since Bretton Woods right? Since 1944, they have been a victim of dollar dominance. When one entity has been able to just benefit from that currency driving everything for that many years, and now they're starting to see that system breaking down, I kind of suspect that you're going to see all the other countries in the world going at this as hard as they possibly can. Yeah, look, I think I agree with you that it's in their incentive that you want to, you see this thing coming and you can't stop it. So you might as well try to have some and have power within the Bitcoin system. Uh, perhaps maybe the only other thing I can think of is that sometimes governments do things that don't make sense. You know, like even if they do make sense, even if it would make sense for them to support it, I think we will see at least some governments that really come out strongly against Bitcoin. And then it becomes a game of jurisdictional arbitrage. I think it becomes about going to those places that supporting Bitcoin because they know they can't stop it. Uh, But for those people who are stuck in a country that is very anti-Bitcoin or putting out a lot of rules and regulations that basically stop the adoption or criminalize it and things like that, it's it's going to be a difficult journey for them. I totally agree with you on that. I think if there's one thing we can count on is that there are going to be countries that really get this wrong. (laughs) Which ones they are, I have no idea. Yeah, that's a tough one to think about. Um, But potentially uh, those small or medium countries might have more of an incentive to because they're the ones kind of punching up, right? They're the ones who have more of an incentive to try to support this thing and to try and ride ride the you know ride the wave. Uh, so maybe they'll be the ones to try and have tax incentives or some other kinds of citizen incentives for people to come and set up a Bitcoin business or set up Bitcoin mining there. And maybe that's uh, something we see. Uh, uh, but uh, I guess for me, it just feels too early, you know, like even though we obviously you and I are very bullish on Bitcoin, we think it's going to it's going very high, you know, medium to longer term. I just for me, it just feels too early for all of that to be happening in the next year or two. You know, to me, it feels more like kind of next cycle uh, is when we might start seeing some of those things. Uh, but I guess that's that's my view. But go on. And, and yeah, I, I would agree with that. It, this is going to be if it would play out in this short duration time frame, like I'm saying here in the next three years, three and a half years. I think that that would be a real shock to the system. And I think it would be very painful for a whole lot of people. Is is that what I want to happen? I, I don't know what it is that I want to happen. I just want to see there to be a fair standard uh, in 
for, for all market participants around the world. That's what I ultimately want, but I don't know necessarily the best way to achieve it is fast or slow. Do you rip, do you rip the Band-Aid off quickly? Do you rip it off slowly? Not that it's going to be a choice. I, I, I just don't know what's going to be better for, for most people around the world. But I do think that there is a possibility that could be faster than what we might be than what the market sentiment would be suggesting. Yeah. Um, I guess if there were to be indicators that you thought, okay, it's not going to be this coming cycle, what would those kinds of indicators look like? Like, would there be any kind of maybe irrational exuberance uh, indicators in your mind? Or do you think those are actually just indicators, as you were saying, are what the US dollar killer kind of aspect? Well, I think if you don't have the price go to the levels that we were talking as far as like 100,000 plus somewhere in that range, I think if you don't have some of those numbers being hit within the time frame that we were talking, then I, I definitely don't think that you're going to see it play out on this cycle. Uh, like, for example, let's just say the price went up to 30,000 and then came back down into some low number like 15,000 or whatever. There's no way that something like that is going to drive this to become global money with with a move like that. I think you're going to need some something in excess of $100,000. Yeah, that's a fair comment. And it also comes to when people compare, say, Bitcoin and gold, right? And I think for Bitcoin to be comparable with gold, I think off the top of my head, I, I think I saw this number. Someone posted this number. I think it was 400 or five, around 500,000 um, for Bitcoin to be comparable with gold. And so uh, I guess that would have to be the level before it even really reaches the same significance as gold, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I'm not so sure that, that it hitting parity with the market cap of gold would be the trigger. I think the trigger is more uh, just kind of the news cycle that's associated, the, the marketing that's associated with the abrupt price movement. I think that's what kind of has the potential to to destroy trust. It all comes back to that word trust. If everyone's losing trust that they're going to be able to retain their buying power, you can see people do some very crazy things and uh, fear-based decision-making, FOMO to, to, a, to a T. That's the thing you got to really watch closely and how much that drumbeat is being beat and how fast this thing is moving, I think, is a, is a really key component of whether it's going to be able to, to do this or not. Yeah, so I think um, those are some really fascinating comments and I've really enjoyed uh, chatting. Uh, Preston, did you have any kind of closing thoughts on some of the themes we've touched on uh, this episode? You know, the, the one thing that I really try to do is just try to, to educate uh, in my Twitter account. The, the first thing that I have pinned there is a one-page paper for people that if they hear Bitcoin or maybe they have a family member that's that is skeptical or whatever. I tried to put the 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 really important or the essence of what Bitcoin's trying to achieve, which is a global peg, among some other things. I tried to put that in this one pager so that it's not too long and people just kind of throw it in the corner, but that they'll actually take the time to read the one pager. Anyone can download it, amend it, change it, whatever you want, however you think would get through to family members. Um, I would just encourage people to to take a look at that. It's just right there on my Twitter uh, first first tweet that sits there. And I think that we're we're entering a time that's going to be really important to pay to- close attention to what the companies are doing because I think they're the ones that are going to be able to make the market move in this really abrupt fashion is when they start stacking it onto their balance sheet because uh, they're sitting on so much uh, capital for a lot of these these large tech companies. That's going to be an important thing to watch. And then I think it's going to be important to watch the headlines like I was talking about. Like going back to the the thing that I read from Germany in 1922, something like that is is 
what you're going to be hearing. And that's going to be the thing that would eventually maybe really kind of take this to a whole different level. Well, I really enjoyed chatting with you, Preston. It was very, uh, really enjoyable. Uh, And listeners, make sure you follow Preston and subscribe to his podcast. Preston, where can listeners find you? Uh, Really, the best place is just on Twitter. You can Google my name, Preston, last name Pish, P-Y-S-H. I have a podcast called We Study Billionaires. We talk a lot about uh, the asset valuation, stock valuation, kind of like what we were doing there with MicroStrategy. And uh, just really an honor to be on your show, Stefan. I, I really enjoy conversations with you. You do such a fantastic job. Thank you, Preston. It's always a pleasure to chat with Preston. So let me know what you think and find the show notes at stefanlevera.com slash 223 for this episode. Thanks. And I'll see you in the Citadels.